0: Okay, so again, this is what we've done so far in Revelation. We've gone through the seals, trumpets, bowls. Okay, we tried to paint just a big picture about what those are describing, okay? And uh, now we're going to kind of go back and try to put in some important pieces. And I think Revelation does clearly describe two groups of people. Okay, and uh, so we go back and forth between those that have the seal of God, the 144,000, those that have the mark of the beast, and so we want to try to contrast uh, between those two groups. I think it's really important. So, again, what we've tried to do is to, um, and I'm told that this glitch problem here will be fixed by next week, so you have to bear with this one more time, but that the trumpet seals and bowls here, again, uh, revolve around the cosmic conflict. Okay, so what we're going to talk about today, I think it's most helpful as we try to uh, understand what is the mark of the beast, that we first understand what the seal of God is. These two are very clearly contrasted, and I think if we can really understand what does it mean to have the seal of God, it makes then a lot more sense to turn and see, okay, what really is the mark of the beast. Okay, so the seal of God described several times, but most clearly here in Revelation 7. For the angel said, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we mark the servants of our God with a seal on their foreheads. Okay, So the, the final events in world history, it would seem that one important element, okay, prior to the winds being released and, and all of these things happening that we've kind of been describing, okay, is that God's people have this seal in their foreheads. So, what does that mean? Okay, and and many have seen a a very similar thing here in in Revelation with regards to the seal. That they will see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads. So, we have a seal on the foreheads, and God's name in their foreheads. Name, of course, means much more than just the name of an individual. It's the character. Okay, very important uh, description here of uh, the individual. So, we'll come back to this point. Okay, first of all, who does the sealing. Okay, and we have just a lot of um, evidence about this, even outside um, the book of Revelation about who does the sealing. It's a work of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians talks a lot about this in Ephesians 1.13, and you also became God's people when you heard the true message, the good news that brought you salvation. You believed in Christ and God put his stamp of ownership or seal on you. By giving you the Holy Spirit he had promised. Okay, so the the work of the Holy Spirit in receiving the seal, um, these two very much go together. And I like the message paraphrased here. Signed, sealed, and delivered by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so what does it mean? How does the Holy Spirit give us a seal? In Ephesians 4.30, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Okay, and one more here in 2 Corinthians. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ, and has anointed us, and has also put his seal on us, and has given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, again, so many times, and there are many other verses that describe the the work of the Holy Spirit involved in this seal. Well, I think uh, the clearest place, if you want to read what really is the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, we need to read the words of uh, Jesus in the upper room. And he just kept talking about this four times here in the upper room that this is what the Holy Spirit is going to do. It's it's quite redundant. Okay, from John 14 through John 16. Okay, the Helper will come, the Spirit. And again, very clear what he does. Who reveals the truth about God? Okay, truth about what? Okay, well, he reveals the truth. So we need to understand what is the truth about God that he reveals. Okay, and again, when the Spirit comes, again, what does he do? Who reveals the truth about God? He will lead you into all the truth. Okay, what truth? Well, the truth about God. And again, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper who will stay with you forever. He is the Spirit. And again, what's the function? Who reveals the truth about God? The world cannot receive him because it cannot see him or know him. But you know him because he remains with you and is in you. Okay, And then finally, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you everything and make you remember all that I have told you. Okay, so what I read into um, these words here, what does the Holy Spirit do? He brings Jesus to us. He brings, again, Jesus telling his disciples, he will make, make you remember all that I have told you. Okay, everything about the life, teachings, character, the message of Jesus, the Holy Spirit brings that to us. That is the ultimate truth about God. Okay, he brings us that truth. And, and so that, that bringing that truth, that true knowledge, I would say is intimately involved in uh, this seal. Okay, So a little more on the Holy Spirit here in John 4. But a time is coming and it's already here even now. The true worshippers are being led by the Spirit. To worship the Father according to the truth. The truth is so often, uh, again, linked here. This, and as Jesus you know, just described, it is the truth about God. It's the ultimate truth. These are the ones that the Father is seeking to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship God must be led by the spirit to worship Him according to the truth. Okay, and then again, turning back to Ephesians, I've not stopped giving thanks to God for you. I remember you in my prayers and ask the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, to give you the Spirit. Okay, again, what's the function? It will make you wise and reveal God to you so that you will know him. Again, eternal life is to know God. This is what it's all about. And so the function of the Holy Spirit, not surprisingly, is to bring us this intimate, personal, real knowledge of who God is. When I hear people sometimes say, "Well, how can we really know God?" I mean, isn't that kind of blasphemous to suggest we can know anything about God? Yet, so much of the New Testament is invested in eternal life is to know God. The Holy Spirit brings us to know God. I mean, we are invited to know God. Okay, and that's the function. So, I like uh, in Jesus' conversation about Nicodemus, he tried to describe how is it that the Holy Spirit works on a human mind to try to diffuse um, this knowledge. And He said to Nicodemus, a person is born physically of human parents, but is born spiritually of the Spirit. Do not be surprised, because I tell you that you must all be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear the sound it makes, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. It is like that with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Okay, Nicodemus was confused. How can this be? Okay, um, I think it's, it's really helpful just to look back over your life, and just to, to try to imagine the, the times and, and the way that God has tried to to, uh, to lead us. Uh, just when I look at my own life, I just think about certain very important times where you know there was no force, coercion, or intimidation, but yet uh, it seemed like there was very much a direction that, that God chose. A, a time when I was maybe willing to listen, and revealed something that, that seemed to get me going in the right direction. And so the Spirit is like this wind, I would say every moment of every day, trying to diffuse on us truth. Okay, Not uh, necessarily doctrines Okay, that we'd associate with a certain denomination, but an ultimate truth, which is what is God like? Truth about God. Okay, so um, we often have, a, I think, kind of a misconception about what it means to be filled with the Spirit. Um, I had a patient uh, just... Oh, maybe two months ago. I was having a long conversation with him, and uh, he was describing uh, an experience in church where he, uh, you know, it was a very uh, altar call, it was a very high emotional experience, and he began getting dizzy and lightheaded and had numbness and tingling, and then he collapsed on the floor and started shaking all over, and he had no real uh, remembrance of, of what happened. His wife was there to kind of you know, describe the experience, and uh, that. That was, you know, in their interpretation, uh, that's just a great description of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, let's just read a little bit. What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? And I don't mean to discount that experience, all right? But I just want to see what can we describe that the Bible seems to paint the picture when we're filled with the Spirit. So, in Isaiah... Referring to Jesus, I would say, the, the Lord says, Here is my servant whom I strengthen, the one I have chosen, with whom I am pleased. I have filled him with my spirit. Okay? And he will bring justice to every nation. Okay? We just get a description of this individual, filled with the spirit. He will not shout, or raise his voice, or make loud speeches in the streets. He will not break off a bent reed, nor put out a flickering lamp. He will bring lasting justice to all. And we had a whole talk recently on what does that mean? What is God's justice? He will not lose hope or courage. He will establish justice on the earth. An individual filled with God's spirit. And when when Paul would describe, what does it mean to be filled with the spirit? Notice, the spirit produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility. And the last one here is self-control, self-mastery. And again, in 2 Timothy, for the spirit that God has given us does not make us timid. Instead, his spirit fills us with power, love. And the last one again is self-control. So I would say, you know, to be filled with the spirit is really to be Christ-like in every way. Christ-like in his humility. I mean, everything about Jesus, that's what it looks like to be filled with the spirit. It's uh, not an out-of-control experience where we don't know what our mind is doing. We are in more control... I would say, than at any other experience we have in our life. Okay? And uh, in for those of you that are Seventh-day Adventists here, uh, this is Helen White's words on the seal. It is not any seal or mark that can be seen, but a settling into the truth. And again, I would say specifically settling into the truth about God, both intellectually and spiritually, so that they cannot be moved. And it would make sense that if the winds are let loose, and if there are chaotic events in the end of world history that God would want his people so settled into the truth that they cannot be moved. I would say to, to go through a Job-like experience, okay, where everyone seems against you and even God seems to have turned against you. And yet, Job was able to remain faithful to the end. And God, in the end, finally says, Job, you said of me what is right. Okay, so uh, people really need to be settled into the truth. So uh, what can we say about the individuals who do have this seal in Revelation? Okay, I would say that the central thing that they are described as, as is that they follow the Lamb. Okay, so the Lamb, who is the center of the throne, remember we talked about the significance of that, will be their shepherd. They won the victory over him by the blood of the Lamb and by the truth which they proclaimed. And notice, they are Christ-like and they were willing to give up their lives and die. Hey, that is agape love, self-sacrificial, where you're willing to give at cost to yourself for others, willing to give up their lives and die. Again, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. The significance of that. Who is their God? It is the God that Jesus, God who Jesus revealed him to be. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. They've never been known to tell lies. They're blameless. Okay, And ultimately, these people experience a wedding, the wedding of the lamb and his bride. Uh, she's been given clean, shining linen to wear. The linen is the good deeds of God's people. And uh, again, I'm not describing a, a perfection uh, theology here, but I think it's just a, a natural process. Remember the verse, by beholding, we become changed. It's unavoidable, I think, that as you really come to know God, see what he's like, enter into that experience more fully, um, you, you can't help but becoming changed by the person you're looking at. And I think that's what's being described here. So finally, this is one of my favorite verses in Revelation, Revelation 22. In the end, the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. I mean, what an incredible thing. They will see his face. Okay, what's the result? And his name, his character, will be written on their foreheads. So, having said that all about the seal, now what can we say about the mark of the beast? If it's true that by beholding we become changed, by beholding God, um, and, and here we could, we could get a lot into this, I'm just going to make the claim now and say that there's biblical evidence for it, that if we are beholding a false god, then by beholding that, we become changed. So whatever we behold, uh, it has an important part in changing us. So I would say that... Uh, by beholding the wrong God, we become changed into that image as well. And I like the words here of Tozer, who said, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Okay, what comes into our minds when we think about God? That's so important because, again, we do naturally tend to become like the God we love, worship, and admire. So I will just say that, um, and then we'll come back and talk about this, that if the mark of the beast is the polar opposite of the seal of God, then the mark of the beast would be to be so settled into the lies about God, into the false picture about God, into the distortions about God, that we cannot be moved. And I would equate this, really, with the sin of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit brings the seal of God. Okay, so to completely reject the work of the Holy Spirit is kind of the polar opposite. And so um, here, let's talk a little bit about the sin of the Holy Spirit, because I think we're talking about the same thing as receiving the mark of the beast. Okay, and here we turn back to the gospels. Okay, this incredible story here with Jesus where some people brought to Jesus a man who was blind and could not talk because he had a demon. And Jesus healed the man so that he was able to talk and see. The crowds were all amazed at what Jesus had done. Could he be the son of David they asked? When the Pharisees heard this, they replied, he drives out demons only because their ruler Beelzebul gives him power to do so. In other words, It's demonic. Jesus knew what they were thinking. And so he said to them, any country that divides itself into groups which fight each other will not last very long. And any town or family that divides itself into groups which fight each other will fall apart. So if one group is fighting another in Satan's kingdom, this means that it is already divided into groups and will soon fall apart. You say that I drive out demons because Beelzebul gives me the power to do so. Well then, who gives your followers the power to drive them out? It's a Good question. What your own followers do proves that you are wrong. No, it is not Beelzebub, but God's Spirit, who gives me the power to drive out demons, which proves that the kingdom of God has already come upon you. No one can break into a strong man's house and take away his belongings unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not for me is really against me. Anyone who does not help me gather is really scattering. For this reason I tell you, People can be forgiven any sin and any evil thing they say, but whoever says evil things against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who says something against the Son of Man can be forgiven, but whoever says something against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven now or ever." Okay, and these were terrifying words for me. I remember as a child thinking, okay, don't have a bad thought against the Holy Spirit. Don't have a bad thought against the Holy Spirit. because you know, that can't be forgiven. No, what's being described here is, what's the work of the Holy Spirit? It's to bring us the truth about God. And these people, the Pharisees, I mean, just imagine you watch someone who's blind and can't speak be healed, and you could look at that and say that is a demonic thing. So I think the mark of the beast is when we can look at Christ, look at something that is a true presentation of Christ, and we can say that is... Demonic. And perhaps the opposite, that we could look at the satanic and even say that is Christ like. I think the mark of the beast is when we get things so switched around, such a polar opposite way. And so the, the sin of the Holy Spirit that can't be forgiven here is not something uh, arbitrary. Okay, this is more like a medical diagnosis that someone here is so convinced of the wrong way. I mean, look at the Pharisees witnessing the whole life of Jesus watching him resurrect Lazarus, and then they left the tomb to plot his death and destruction, um, that we could really get a clear revelation of God and actually decide that that is demonic. Okay, that's the mark of the beast, or the, the sin of the Holy Spirit, as I would understand it. Okay, so let's read a little bit about those who received the mark of the beast. I think there are some important points here. Now, the dragon... Okay, so, so we have two characters in Revelation, the violently slaughtered lamb and the dragon. But the dragon has surrogate powers, a uh, beast, false prophet. Okay, so what the dragon does here is it gave the beast his own power, his throne, and his vast authority. And one of the heads of the beast seems to have been fatally wounded, but the wound had healed. And I have mentioned this before, but in the Greek that this is the same, as, same wording as the violently slaughtered lamb in the throne room scene. And the key point here is the imitative aspect of this, that the dragon gives its power to someone who is imitative of Christ. And the whole earth was amazed and followed the beast. Everyone worshipped the dragon because he had given his authority to the beast. They worshipped the beast also, saying, who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The beast was allowed to make proud claims which were insulting to God. He began to curse God, his name, the place where he lives, and all those who live in heaven. So this is Revelation 13. This is where we get to the mark of the beast. But notice what these people are doing is they're worshipping the dragon. They're worshipping the beast. And that's what we've said is, again, when we can actually see the satanic and worship that, um, we've switched things completely around. That's the mark of the beast. So then I saw another beast, which came up out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb's horn, and we call, even call this the lamb-like beast. Okay, again, the imitative aspect of Satan doesn't come as a, you know, uh, someone in white, uh, red tights, and a red pitchfork here, but imitative of the lamb, the lamb-like beast. And it, but it spoke like a dragon. It used the vast authority of the first beast in its presence, and noticed it forced the earth and all who live on it to worship the first beast whose wound had healed. This second beast performed great miracles. It made fire come down out of heaven to earth in the sight of everyone. And it deceived all the people living on earth by means of the miracles which it was allowed allowed to perform in the presence of the first beast. The beast told them to build an image in honor of the beast that had been wounded by the sword and yet lived. So, um, several things about this passage, but one, for me, it just highlights the importance of having a cosmic conflict theology that we see, however we view these uh, beasts, these surrogate powers, that the one behind it, the dragon behind it, is seeking to divert our worship away from the true God to something that is its polar opposite. Okay, and let's pick out a few important points here. One is it forced the earth and all who live on it to worship, which reminds me of Nebuchadnezzar here in his uh, golden image. Remember, the command was, down on your knees, And if I were just making a short list of things that would distinguish God and His kingdom, His character, versus the adversary, His kingdom, His character, uh, one thing on that list would be uh, coercion. Um, I don't believe God forces us down on your knees. Okay, this is what we see here in uh, paganism, and this is what we see here in the beast forcing worship. Okay, what does God do? He stands at the door and knocks. We need to come and open the door. And I like the the, kind of the poetic description here. If we do, I will come into their house and eat with them, they will eat with me. Okay, that that God's way of winning us is not like this. It's not down on your knees. He knocks. Okay, we need to respond out of freedom, own sense of freedom, and turn to God, open the door, and then we experience something wonderful. But he doesn't force and coerce. That's what we see the, the beast doing in Revelation. Okay. Another aspect. It and you know, I'll come back to that. Another aspect is it deceived all the people living on Earth by means of the miracles. Okay. Another reason I think it's important that we have this uh, cosmic conflict perspective. It's not just about God and us, but there, that we recognize a non-human reality. Okay. An, an angelic, both good and bad, reality, is that if we see something miraculous, that we don't automatically assume. That God is the acting subject. Okay, there there is a third uh, part of the triangle here, and um, so just seeing something supernatural is not in and of itself diagnostic of well that has to be God acting. And Revelation seems to be describing that uh, we should at least have our eyes open to miracles. That all miracles are not necessarily um, of God. Okay, that there's an adversary who can deceive and. I mean, even if we just consider, let's say, an atheist who wouldn't see three corners of this at all, but just a, a human um, reality. Okay, how would someone like that respond to clearly a supernatural revelation? Okay, would it automatically be assumed? Well, I guess there is a God. Okay, and again, the the importance here of, I think, uh, coming to a larger understanding of things that God has an adversary, that He is allowed. Um, existence. We've talked about why in the past. Okay, and So, of course, Jesus would warn about false messiahs, false prophets will appear, will produce great signs and omens to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. And Paul would say even Satan can disguise himself as an angel of light. So I just have to, to be uh, very aware of that. And uh, I find this uh, verse in Deuteronomy quite interesting, all the way back in the books of Moses that uh, we have here, that suppose there are prophets among you or those who dream dreams about the future and they promise you signs or miracles. And let's say that the predicted signs or miracles occur. Wouldn't that be definitely, okay, that has to be from God if the sign or the miracle occurs? Well, if they then say, come, let us worship other gods, gods you have not known before, do not listen to them. So the, the ultimate getting behind the miracles here is what is the individual saying about God? Okay? If there's, there are great signs and miracles and wonders that yet what is being said about God, what is being revealed about God is different than Jesus Christ, then I would say forget the miracle. Okay? Much more important that we're settled into the truth about who God is and that that becomes our ultimate, ultimate thing that is in our mind about what is true. Okay, so I'll I'll just conclude. uh, I don't know how many of you have read The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky, but there's a very interesting passage that ties into uh, what we're talking about here. Okay, talking about Jesus. So uh, he said, if ever a real thundering miracle was performed on earth, it was on that day, the day of those three temptations. And I've left out a lot of the, the passage here, but I'll just kind of summarize that the ultimate miracle here that was perceived is the lack of a miracle. Satan came to Jesus and said, turn this stone to bread, do this, do that. And Jesus refused to do a miracle. Okay, And this, he would describe as, um, I'll just read it again, if ever a real thundering miracle was performed on earth, it was on that day, the day of those three temptations. Not performing a miracle. And then moving to the cross. You did not come down from the cross when they shouted to you, mocking and reviling you, Come down from the cross and we will believe that it is you. You did not come down because, again, you did not want to enslave man by a miracle and thirsted for faith that is free, not miraculous. You thirsted for the love that is free and not for the servile raptures of a slave before a power that has left him permanently terrified. There are three powers, only three powers on earth capable of conquering and holding forever the conscience of these feeble rebels for their own, quote, happiness. These powers are miracle, mystery, and authority. And referring to Jesus, you rejected the first, the second, and the third, and gave yourself as an example of that. And remember how often Jesus did a miracle and then told people, uh, be quiet about it. Don't tell anyone. And when people came and said, show us a miracle to prove who you are, Um, He never did it under that circumstance, and he didn't do a miracle even on the cross. I mean, immediately he could have had everyone worshiping him. It would have been so easy. But that is not the kind of worship that God desires, the worship that comes from any sort of uh, coercive intimidation. So I just want to look at these and consider them a little bit, that the three powers that should not win our hearts to God are miracle, mystery, and authority. And miracle, I would kind of tie in with that coercion. Now, Jesus did miracles, okay? but did he do it to, in any way, coerce or intimidate people into the kingdom? Mystery, which I would associate with secrets, lies, deception, and authority, which uh, uh, Dostoevsky is, is describing as based on power and fear. Okay? And I would say that uh, all of these uh, can easily be used by the adversary. And so we should just be aware of them. First, let's contrast miracles, coercion. And I would say here in God's kingdom, that instead we freely respond to the truth spoken in love. Again, what we see in the cross. We respond ultimately to the truth spoken in love, not might show and force. What about the contrast to mystery and all that's involved in that? And I think what we can see in Revelation is a, God has a transparent government. I mean, look what he does. He invites the seven churches up into the throne room, let me show you, and let's come right to who is on the throne. It's transparent. Mystery, secrets, you know, that tends to verge towards lies and deceptions. Um, you know, the devil doesn't have the truth, so he can't be transparent. needs to rely on mystery and deception. What about authority? Um, well, I think what's being described in Revelation is authority that is based on power, fear, and intimidation. Okay, what is God's authority? And I would say God's authority ultimately springs from loving admiration. Um, I can't remember the last time I told this story, so you might have all heard this. But uh, uh, I think maybe I told it recently. I can't remember. But after a Bible study not too long ago, a few years ago, my phone rang. And I looked down, and there on the phone it said, Jesus. And I watched it ring two or three times, um, and I was just I, almost speechless, I couldn't even answer. I am just looking, Jesus. I had to spell it and think about it, and then finally I thought, okay, well better answer. You know, After Bible study, I'm thinking, okay, maybe I really said something wrong, I don't know. But I answered it, and it was a, a gardener out here, his name was Jesus, and I put his number in, and um, anyway, so I had kind of a shock experience there. Um, Why doesn't God do that more often? Don't we want God to... Why doesn't he more directly tell us? I want you to do this residency program. Uh, I want you to go here. Uh, We have an issue in our life, and we can just ask him, and he tells us. Okay, I think that a a part of... uh, And God has done that. So we need to recognize that God has met people that way. Um, But I think what really settles us into God, what really makes us firmly uh, united to him is when we come to him freely and with no coercion or intimidation. And I don't see God using those methods very often. Maybe to reach uh, uh, sometimes hardened people, uh, like in the Old Testament. Okay, But his methods of winning us are different. And this is one of my favorite quotes um, here, that omnipotence is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. So if we look at the cross, um, we see that God's authority is ultimately demonstrated on the cross. Okay, It's easy to give our allegiance to God when we see how low he was willing to go. Okay, he didn't coerce our worship. Okay, The come, coming and dying, okay, we freely give that to him. No mystery here, right? I mean, God is just laid bare, naked, finally in a tomb. No mystery about that. We want to know what God is like uh, we see very clearly on the cross. Okay? And again, Jesus did no miracles on the cross. Okay? This is who I am? Do you like that kind of a kingdom of someone who dies and forgives his enemies and tells a thief on, his cro- on the cross that you'll be in my kingdom? Okay? That's, that's the kind of kingdom that God is trying to usher us into. Okay? So again, next time we'll talk about the three angels' message. Okay, let's pray. Dear Father, there's much to admire about your kingdom and uh, the way that you try to win us to your kingdom. Uh, Thank you that your Holy Spirit is intensely working on the minds of each one of us uh, to bring us more fully to see who you are and, uh, again, help us to reflect that beautiful kingdom to others. Amen.